What's up, guys? It is Wednesday, May 20th, and finally, I have a guest on the podcast this week, Merrick Mislowski. I probably definitely butchered that name. Anyways, Merrick is the author of Chasing Black Unicorns. He talks about how building the Amazon of Africa put him on Interpol's most wanted list. He has a background in finance, and overall, he's a very interesting guy. I think you guys will really enjoy what he has to say. So let's get to it, and as always, be sure to subscribe if you have not already, and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about blockchain tech, and in this case, Merrick and his book, Chasing Black Unicorns. Enjoy. This is the Blockhash Podcast. All right, Merrick, how you doing? All great here. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked before, and I know you have quite an interesting background and whatnot. Um, so for the people in my audience that may or may not be familiar with who you are and the kind of stuff that you do, do you want to kind of talk a little bit first about um, your background and uh, some of the accomplishments and some of the things you've gone through? Sure thing. So I'm a Polish-born entrepreneur, and I think I'm mostly known, quote-unquote, because of my last eight years of uh, professional experience that I have spent in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa to be precise. So Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa. And I had two very extreme adventures there, which kind of put me on the map, both for good and bad reasons. The, the positive one was that I was part of uh, building a, a huge e-commerce group called Jumia, which we started from scratch in 2012, and we, we did an IPO last year on New York Stock Exchange. But my other company have gotten me into some deep, deep trouble in Nigeria because essentially my Nigerian business partner wanted to get rid of me using very, very nasty uh, things. Like sometimes it happens in Nigeria. I'm talking about corrupt Nigerian police and, and I almost ended up in jail if I didn't give back my company for free. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made this whole case public. I took those, all those people to courts, which no one was expected. I will, I will be stupid enough or brave enough to do and, and want this uh, legally. And wrote a book about it, which kind of, you know, put me on this on the spot lately because I started sharing my story. Um, so yeah, I guess those two two experiences really define my my career at least in the last decade because those eight years were all about Africa and all about building online businesses in, in this region. What, what was it with the company that got you on Interpol? Was it just like uh, someone? Um, was it like a financial thing, or was it? So I'm going to give you the, the, the short version because obviously there's the whole book about it. When, when you're a foreigner and you want to invest in an in a exotic country for yourself, something, you know, some place you have never really been to, then there's always this common knowledge that you want to do it with, with a strong local partner, someone that you can trust, someone that will actually protect you when the bad guys will, you know, start being interested about you. I'm talking about bribes and different type of extortion and so on and so on. What no one tells you really is sometimes that person that is supposed to protect you can also turn out to be uh, not always the best person because if that person is able to protect you, that means that person has the means also to do something bad, right? Every security guy can also harm you if he wants to. And unfortunately, this happened to me and something that started as a very classic conflict in the board of the company Long story short, we're growing pretty aggressively. I wanted to take this company left. He wanted to take this company right. 
he was this 50-year-old, very successful businessman in the country of Nigeria. He had everyone in his pocket. And I was this cocky young entrepreneur from Poland thinking that I understand the technology better than anyone else. And I know better what to do with the company. And, and I just underappreciated the size of an ego of someone that is way older and way more powerful than me. And he decided to teach me a lesson by showing me how it is done in a country like uh, Nigeria. So that's basically gotcha. it. It was really a series of mistakes made by me on a personal level in terms of how you're supposed to communicate with your business partners, with your investors. I was too cocky and too aggressive from the business perspective, mixed with someone that doesn't have a problem with breaking the law to teach you a lesson. Gotcha. What, what brought you to Africa originally? Was it just opportunity? Um, like, like most things in life, it was a coincidence. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, my life can really be divided into, two, into three parts. The last one I already told you about, it was Africa. Then my first big portion of my professional life was working in the finance sector. I started doing this in the early 2000s. We made some big money back in the days in Poland before the financial crisis. And then we lost everything uh, during 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got burned out. I didn't want to do anything in finance anymore. So I went into startups because that's where the money was, I thought. And I had a couple of small successes. I'm talking about selling the company for an amount, almost a million dollars, not more. And I also had a lot of failures. And at that point, I realized I want to work at least for a year for some huge international online company where I can learn how to do an international business on the Polish one. And besides Amazon and Alibaba, which are the biggest e-commerce companies out there, there's also a third one from Europe called Rocket Internet. And there's this common knowledge in Europe. If you want to be a successful entrepreneur in the online space, you want to work for these guys for a year at least. Like they will suck all the energy you have out of you, <laughs> but you will also learn so much. So I just wanted to work for them for a year. I treated this as my MBA in business, in life. And they, at that point, were just planning to do some huge business expansion in Nigeria. And they were like, okay, you want to go with us with Nigeria? And I said, I have nothing to lose. So that was total coincidence. I really didn't, didn't know anything. I just went with the flow. And I kind of fell in love in the process in the continent and I stayed. What was supposed to be a year, you know, it's already eighth year, yeah, and it's still going. What's it like doing business in Nigeria or is it kind of the same across Africa? I feel like in some ways it's like the Wild West, but I mean, I also hear all the time about how there's so many emerging opportunities down there if you just, you know, if you're willing to go and, you know, check it out. Yeah. So if, if I have to generalize, which is very hard because, you know, Africa is a huge continent, 54 mm -hmm. countries, hundreds of languages and cultures and tribes, if not thousands. Right. But definitely there's one common thing about each country is that the potential is huge. As long as your investment time is long because, you know, it's hard to make money in three years, especially technology. But if you look at 10 year, 15 year horizon, then definitely the potential is huge. Um, the biggest problem I think in Sub-Saharan Africa, which was my focus, are two things. The infrastructure is on one side a huge stopper, but on the other side, great opportunity. Let me look at, let me explain you. Uh, so we couldn't really build e-commerce or online travel business because hotels had no access to the internet. You know, everyone said that there is Wi-Fi in the hotel, but it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Or when we were wanted to build an e-commerce business, we couldn't really work with DHL or FedEx, those companies were not working with e-commerce companies back then. So we had to build our own logistics. There were, there, was, there, there were no real huge bookstores or huge shopping malls network that you could leverage on. We actually had to build the physical infrastructure 
first to build an e-commerce business. But that's also a great chance when you look at different sector, for example, fintech. Fintech in Africa is really growing like crazy. That's because there is no old school banking system that you have to disrupt. And there are no you know, groups of interest that are lobbying to keep the status quo. This is why blockchain has a big chance to be adopted much faster in Africa than anywhere else, because there is no infrastructure that will slow you down. I'm talking about those new, mm. new, new, new uh, innovations. There's also a problem with really small middle class. You know, in a country like Nigeria, there's 200 million people, but there's only 1% of them, which is like 2 million people that make more than $10,000 per year. And, you know, and the whole, all the rest of the country actually make less. So they can't just, you know, you know, buy on a monthly basis stuff that you usually would buy. So it's really hard to build scale uh, as long as your product, if your product is not extremely cheap. It's probably um, easy to run like a pilot program, though, for, for any kind of new service or product in the tech space or software space. I know with blockchain, at least, there's a lot of projects going into Africa because it's really easy to walk in and be able to talk to the local government. Um, or talk to local businesses and, you know, set up some type of use case or pilot program. And it's a lot easier to build in an emerging market or in a market with less infrastructure than it is in a big first world country, at least from the blockchain side of it. I know there's a lot uh, going on in Africa um, and in Latin America, too, in some ways. Um, just a lot of opportunity for emerging markets out there in general. I totally agree. Um, I, I'm, I'm not running or I'm not investing in any blockchain business, but so many of my friends do. And when I look at, you know, how many friends I have and what the percentage of my friends that are involved in blockchain in Africa, yeah. that, that balance is much, you know, much bigger in Africa than in Europe, for example. Way more people uh, from tech space are in blockchain that I know than in Europe, for example. So there must be something there. Yeah. What's your thoughts on blockchain? Um, I know you're not really directly in it, but I mean, it's you, you're in finance. Um, friends are so a lot of your friends are surrounded by or, or involved in it. Um, what's your opinion on it? I'm very hopeful that this technology, as soon as it finds its proper way of implementation in different business sectors, um, can push this economy forward because the biggest problem of the growing, and these are growing pains, economy in Africa is that the infrastructure is just not working. I'm talking about a legal system that maybe is good on the paper, but it's not enforced. I'm talking about payments between countries, mm -hmm. uh, between merchants and so on and so on. And it's so hard to build it from scratch the same way it was built in Europe a couple of years ago. But for me, blockchain is a little bit like introducing a wireless internet. Um, in, in Lagos, the internet connection in the city itself, I think it's better than San Francisco because every time I was in San Francisco, the internet was shit. <laughs> yeah. And in, in Lagos, you had 4G before, before states, I think, or at the same time. Um, because you didn't have to build that old school infrastructure, you know, fa uh, cables under, underground and so on. You went immediately to new technologies that allow you for kind of like a frog leap. And uh, this is why I'm also hopeful in terms of blockchain because this is, this is the potentially frog leap to quickly jump into a financial uh, system that is working and does not require so many intermediaries. Uh, it's just more efficient. Um, I wouldn't say transparent because you can argue whether blockchain is transparent or not, whether it's a feature or a bug. 
but it definitely allows everything to be built uh, faster. Because if you want to build financial systems the same way they will build in the States or Europe, no one has time, no one has money to do that. And it would be also stupid because why do you, why do you want to make the same mistakes here? Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the internet because I know that the internet in a lot of ways is built on um, these, at least the legacy system is built on these cables. They run them like under the ocean, um, hundreds of thousands of miles, uh, just so that you can connect to different continents. And a lot of the big companies like Facebook and Google, they own these underwater, underground um, network lines. Um, but, you know, in countries like Africa or Latin America, I mean, you're kind of skipping over that step and going right to what works now and, you know, just going wireless, um, using uh, different ways to access the internet. Um, like in Brazil, for example, most people are on their phone more than they are on a computer. Um, they use their phone for everyday life and they don't really even need data. They just use Wi-Fi hotspots because they're practically everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like depending on where you live and I'm sure it's very similar in Africa. I mean, like if you're an emerging market, you've kind of skipped over some steps to, to be efficient <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that's like when you're in San Francisco, why it's so slow. I mean, one, you have so much demand for internet and everyone's clustered together. Um, I mean, they were kind of the first to get there. So their systems are a lot older versus yeah. if you're in a emerging market, maybe in Colombia or Argentina, Brazil, or out in Africa or Southeast Asia, you know, you got better, newer infrastructure that, um, it's kind of more fitting for you know modern times. Exactly. I mean, there's so many peculiarities. Uh, I'm also going to give you an example of Nigeria. I don't. I don't think I've ever met a, a country where clients would be so price sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, still a year ago, Google was actually buying TV advertisements, and you could see Google TV ad mm -hmm. promoting Google Search as a product in the main TV channel in Nigeria because, you know, the understanding uh, about this product and about Google is still so low. Mm -hmm. uh, but then on the other hand, everyone you speak to on the street has a smartphone because the smartphones are just so cheap from China. And for to have a smartphone, it's just, you have to have it. You may be hungry, but you have to have a smartphone. This is your only window to the world. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows exactly how much data each of your application works because data is extremely expensive. It's maybe not that expensive when you compare absolute numbers, but it's like up to 30% sometimes of your salary right. if you want to use internet on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting when you start talking about cell phones and computers. Um, I, I think more people are concerned about having a good smartphone than a computer because you can do just about everything you usually do, whether it's work or um, leisure or just stuff for fun or um, communicating with family or colleagues. You can do it all from your phone. You can work from your yeah. phone. Um, dictation is incredible nowadays. Um, there's very little use for a keyboard unless you're like actively needing to type something. Like if you're a writer, yeah. coder, um, it's, it's getting really interesting how technology is kind of getting smaller, getting more simple, hands-free. Um, yeah, I think we're going to lose the computer pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. And also going back to voice, um, and people considered, you know, going to voice and going to emojis as going back in evolution mm -hmm. i don't see it this way i think we always preferred voice but when computers were introduced the technology was not there to recognize voice so you had to come up with this keyboard that probably in 20 years from now keyboard 
we will look at it in such a strange way like we're looking at floppy disks yeah <laughs> because it's just more natural to communicate with a voice than with typing something on, yeah and it's on progressing it. so, very very quickly too. amazing how it's changing yeah remember like five years ago i was trying to use siri um just asking her to like type something she's butchering the words all the time it's so annoying now when i use it or <laughs> any any other built-in uh meta ai for um like google home or um, Cortana on Microsoft or Siri on Apple. It's very, very accurate. Very accurate. Yeah. Um, and I imagine another five years down the line, I might be uh, dictating an entire book. I know some people that are actually starting to do that. That's how good it's getting. It's very interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I could see it on my own skin because my accent, you probably noticed, is super yeah. strange. <laughs> because <Very> I, <laughs> I I learned English when I was you know in Poland, but then you know eight years in Nigeria and then South Africa, and these are all strange accents. So I have this mixture because while I was learning, I was getting those new accents and adopting them. So I have a mixture of Nigerian and and, and really Polish accent. So I remember two years ago, Siri didn't get anything from what I was saying, and. I'm already, uh, you know, telling her the whole email and she's, she's doing it pretty well. So another amazing, you know, thing that goes forward. Well, now you can pick your language too and uh, she'll respond to you natively in that language and she'll pick yeah. up your accent better. Yes. Yeah, that's true that they have this as well. I mean, I don't know who's doing this, but the technology <laughs> behind it is absolutely crazy. <laughs> oh, they got the team, they got the money, so I'm not surprised, but man, it's in some ways it's really cool. Some ways it's really scary because now I can have a conversation with her. <laughs> so I'm not so that my friend, <laughs> my friend works in Google brain in that, you know, that the department of Google that works on AI. Yeah. And he always tells me that two types of people are afraid of AI. The first type doesn't know enough about what AI is. And so they are afraid and the other type knows too much. <laughs> and also so that's his joke. And I don't know if I should be laughing or I should be scared. Well, I, I think when it comes to AI, I don't think we're very close to having something that's going to, you know, take over the world and wipe out humans and all that scary sci-fi stuff. But I mean, at the same time, when we get to a point where, you know, AI can rationalize a bit more, who knows what decisions it'll make. <laughs> so. That's true. And I think the threat is not only in AI, you know, consciously trying to harm us because mm -hmm. it thinks that it's actually protecting us. I'm just talking about different bugs and viruses and just mistakes in the way someone, something was programmed. Looking at how much now is controlled or semi-controlled by AI, poten mm -hmm. the, the size of potential damage because of a mistake, not really, you know, conscious uh, destruction is also getting bigger and bigger. Like remember those the whole problem with Boeing's yeah the the last mm -hmm. uh, model of Boeing's which essentially it was a bug but the AI the the the, the algorithms or engines in in the in the control center I don't know what's the proper definition of that were actually the ones that made the flight go down. Well, that's what happens when you start letting a computer fly your plane instead of a human, and you, yeah. <laughs> you think that the computer would have less um, less chance of you know crashing a plane because you're eliminating human error, but it's kind of like a catch 22 because computers can have errors too. Uh, yeah. So it's, what, what do you rely on more? Um, I personally would rather at this point have a human flying me, but I know most of these airlines are practically flying themselves. I don't know what the pilots are doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not looking at the board all the time. Yeah. 
they're probably kicking it back and just <laughs> taking a nap, to be honest. Jeez. Um, yeah. Well, anyways, let's talk about your book before we get too sidetracked. Um, so you need, yeah. I got, you got a book, uh, chasing black unicorns, um, talking a lot about your yeah. experience in Africa and whatnot. Um, what, what's the general overview of the book that people will look to take away from it? Yeah. So let me tell you why I wrote the book, because it actually tells a lot about okay. what's inside. Um, I always wanted to write a book as everyone does because it's one of those few things that you always want to have. But I figured I'm going to do this when I'm old and rich and famous and I want to leave a legacy with all my, you know, wise stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And never knew it's going to happen that soon. And and then I was moving to Nigeria in 2012 and obviously being an ignorant and knowing nothing about this country and the whole continent, I was looking for literature and uh, I couldn't really find anything interesting from a business perspective. I could only see books written by university professors. Uh, or some you know crazy guys driving a motorbike through the desert. So I figured maybe I'm onto something. Maybe if I you know build this, those online businesses in this you know very unique continent, I'll have some niche knowledge that someone will be interested in. And then this whole you know thing happened. It hit me that I I spent a night in jail, and I was I was actually thinking that I'm going to be ex- extradited to Nigeria to jail. And I knew what's gonna happen to me. I would have to spend a couple of days or a couple of weeks. They would scare me. They would scare the shit out of me. And then they would give me the papers to to give give the shares of the company out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just thinking, okay, how how I'm gonna survive this? Um, and that's where I that's where the thought came to myself and said, oh my god, my book just became interesting. <laughs> I just have to get out <laughs> of it alive. Uh, and it, as long as it has a happy end, and and that's really what I've done because this is kind of like a hybrid of all the crazy stories that happened to me in the last 10 years, first in the financial sector in Poland, which was a little bit crazy as well. Then I had some startups adventures in Poland, but really most of the book is about Africa. Uh, But those crazy stories that I tell you about in this book, I'm kind of telling you to make you interested, to make you laugh, to make you maybe sometimes a little bit cry or, you know, just leave the story with me. Mm -hmm. And once I have your attention, I'm kind of, Putting, giving you those knowledge bites that I kind of collected. Because if I only wrote a biography, I'm like, who am I to write a biography when I'm 32, yeah? Right. Uh, but if I wrote only a business book, then it would be too boring. So I kind of wanted to make a mix of those two things. And um, on top of it, it's basically a journey of a guy that started building businesses when he was 19, because I was this classic example of a guy, you know, jumping out of university because he wants to be a second Mark Zuckerberg. And then going through all those crazy adventures and then becoming slowly smarter, hopefully wiser, hopefully, you know, more at peace with himself and so on and so on. So there's also a journey, you know, done to you as a, as a man. And, and that's how the book came to life. So there's a little bit of Indiana Jones, a little bit of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, and, and probably a lot of, uh, how do you call it, comedy drama uh, in it. And uh, to, to, to finish the story, I didn't want to make money on this one because that was not the point of it. So right. all the revenue from the book, uh, as well as the, all the speaking engagements that I'm getting thanks to the book, because it's already been published in five countries, uh, has, has you know had got this bestseller status, whatever they're gonna call it, mm-hmm. uh, goes to a charity which we which I've launched together with my life partner. Uh, so I also want to kind of you know pay forward. I don't want the people to say that I'm the one that is now bashing what happened to me in Nigeria. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't want to enforce the negative PR of you know Africa or Nigeria. 
I actually do it the other way around. Because of what happened to me, I've lived through the bad stuff, very scary, and also the good stuff. Now I think I'm much more reliable when I tell you Africa as a continent, in terms of business opportunities, the risk is worth, the reward is worth the risk. Uh, so I'm trying to add a little bit more, a little bit more realistic view to how you can run a business in Africa. It's freaking dangerous sometimes, mm-hmm. but it's worth it in terms of satisfaction and potential financial rewards. So is the book more of a encouraging tale or a cautionary tale? So I wanted this book to be a informative tale. I wanted this okay. to, you know, be a mix of Peter Thiel zero to one. <laughs> with with some you know I really love it. Great book too. I've read that one. Oh, it's amazing. But after the book was published, so many people came to me and they told me that this book has given them a lot of you know power, motivation to go through their own tough situations in life, which was not absolutely my my goal. So I think it is a pretty it has a pretty important aspect of motivations. However, this was a side effect because uh, most importantly for me, for me, it's an informative tale of, you know, what, what not to do, what mistakes not to make when you're running online businesses in, I would say, emerging frontier markets, like those early markets when there's a lot of chaos. I'm talking about uh, Poland in the early 2000s and then, uh, you know, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa a little bit later. Very cool. No, it sounds awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to, to digging into the book later this week once I get some stuff finished up. Um, you have to let me know uh, once you finish it. <laughs> no, I, I really want to dig into it. I have like a stack of books that I'm supposed to read, and you'd think that I've been reading nonstop in quarantine, but I, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, I think we discussed this. Actually, in our business, we're all in tech. Now business has expanded. We're one of the lucky guys, yeah? Yeah. Everything is everything is starting to act so much faster. When you're doing when you're in B two B business, mm-hmm. uh, one of the startup I'm involved in, where I invested in, they're they're selling their services to be corporates, and these guys just realized that all those meetings can now be an email, you know? <laughs> or, yeah. or just realized that this big meeting, this big board meeting, can be done virtually, and it has just accelerated by an order of magnitude when you're doing business with corporates, for example. And I can you know, there's so many examples like this. If you guys are like in your 30s or 20s and you're in technology space, um, as long as the world economy won't collapse fully, <laughs> uh, actually our piece of the pie is really getting much more interesting now. Yeah, I mean, sometimes with these technologies, it just takes a push. Like it's kind of funny how lazy people look in retrospect when you look back at it, like before the whole pandemic. Um, and then now everyone's super efficient. Everyone's on Zoom. Everyone's communicating very clearly and quickly via email. <laughs> um, yeah. I think Zoom for a while, or it still might be the number one app in the app store. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, yeah, it's like all these methods to make business more efficient, to make everything easy to do from home and to do remotely is finally now being used now that we have a real use case for it worldwide. Um, It's interesting how that's um, playing out with technologies. I know that's happening a lot with blockchain too, um, because there's a lot of solutions where you can at home um, submit for marriage licenses or IDs or business certificates and things like that. Or you can vote securely from home uh, through blockchain. Uh, At least in the U S there's a lot of States that are piloting different programs for that. Uh, because it you know solves the issue during the pandemic when no one can really go out and do anything 
Um, so lots and lots of different technologies are definitely having their day in the light with this, uh, this quarantine. It's very sad that it takes a quarantine for, <laughs> to push these technologies to get some more. The best CTO, you know. yeah. The quarantine is the best CTO in every corporation. <laughs> yeah, it is at the moment. That's for sure. Um, what about a second book? You going to do another one? Um, I, I probably will. Um, I just don't want the book writing to become part of my life. It was, it was an amazing adventure for myself because, you know, I did this proper book promotion for the last couple months, mm-hmm. uh, in, especially in Poland and in South Africa. And I wanted to be in the States, but obviously I'm doing this remotely now because the whole book tour was canceled. Uh, and it's an amazing thing to do. Uh, writing a book, publishing it is one of the most painful projects of my life, but also one of the most satisfying. Um, I just don't see myself as a guy that, you know, makes a living out of writing books uh, and, and, and doing all this over and over again. I'm an entrepreneur deep inside me. Uh, right. So I'm already going back to business. Uh, it's great to write a book from time to time. I'm talking maybe, you know, every 10 years. Every time there's something very interesting that happened into your life and you have some knowledge to share. I love the concept of putting everything together, dissecting that knowledge, editing it to make it really, um, you know, like high quality, high quality piece of piece of text. Yeah. Uh, in, instead of just you know just going and talking, 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 talking. Um, so definitely we'll, we'll do it at some point, but business comes first. I'm just you know it's too much fun building businesses. <laughs> no, no, I agree with you. I'm in the same boat. Um, I, I even published a book back in 2017. When I'm just coming out of college and it's, it's a hell of a process to go through, but, um, it, it really helps. Like if you do like having a book out, you do want to do like different books, like maybe in a series or a sequel of books or something like that. Um, like I journal like every single day. Um, oh, that's super, super what, cool. Yeah. Whatever happens in my day, like I just journal it down and then like, I can always go back to it. Like maybe a year later and there you go 365 days, page a day, 365 pages for a book. Um, really Not easy. Bad. Like if you really, really wanted to publish a book, just you don't have to think about it. Just journal every day and you got plenty of information at the end. But um, going back and trying to recall stuff to write a book is just... It's so hard. Yeah. Better. No, no. If you, once you read every, every, time, every day a little bit, you just you stay in the zone. You train your mind to... You know, it, it seems like it starts that writing is as easy as thinking. And once you have that, you know, channeling that as, you know, the moment you think about it, you can write about it, then you just become way more uh, prolific. It's just so easy to write a lot. And in the beginning, half of it you have to throw out. <laughs> but then after every week, there's less and less that you, you, you need to throw out. You know? I, 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 I've, I still keep writing. Uh, whether these are you know longer emails uh, or or articles on blogs or for, to some newspapers, I want to stay in that zone of being able to put my thoughts into writing, because your whole communication with the outside world then just becomes better. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. If I had my choice, though, I'd prefer reading a book than writing a book. But <laughs> <laughs> um, either way. Um, yeah. Anyways, before we uh, kind of wrap up and get to the end of it. What are, tell me your thoughts on uh, the current uh, crisis that we're in. Because I know that you were in finance and you kind of saw, obviously saw what was going back on in 2008 with the recession. Um, 
having some similar throws in the market to 2007, 2008 um, could be a lot worse. Um, there's tons of money being printed, interest rates are near zero everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Cracking up like crazy. Do you think that we're going to get out of this or do you think this is going to be a, a, a tough one to, to skirt? Um, as, as a layman as I am, um, you know, economy works in circles. Uh, it seems like we're still going to stay in democracy, capitalism, mm-hmm. at least for some time. And as long as this stays, then capitalism works in circles. And from the technical point of view, we had the longest bull run ever. So it's like, you know, the Black Friday. And we were just waiting for a reason to do it. Obviously, now with the new normal, with no people scaring us all the time, that you'd never be able to go to a pub the same way or travel on a plane, mm-hmm. which I think it's kind of crazy. Uh, but it, it had to happen. And then when you look at how much money is actually pumped into the economy, how much people are willing to get back on their feet. Um, and actually, there's no infrastructure destroyed yet. It's not like, you know, we had a war. No aliens have came, have come <laughs> right. and destroyed our in- infrastructure. It's just the psychology. When people are scared, they stop working, stop producing value. It should be much easier to recover from it than to, to recover from, I don't know, Second World War. Whenever I don't know what's, what's, happen- what's going to happen in the future, I look what's happened in the past. We recovered in an amazing way in Europe post Second World War, uh, thanks to a lot of money being put into into the back to the market. Uh, you remember about uh, after uh, the Spanish flu and after the uh, First World War, you had this period of time called the Roaring Twenties in the USA, when people were like leaving again because they were like the war is over, the flu is over, now mm. it's you know time to enjoy life again, and everything went back somehow. Um, until the second world war but that's another thing so i i am still optimistic especially because we're this you know young generation and we live in technology um everything will be digitalized maybe our life quality will go down because of you know some restrictions uh but we should see this as a chance for us running different technology businesses yeah, I, I definitely see an up and a downside to all of this. I mean, the upside, yeah. there's a lot of room for companies to, to mature and grow and have some pliability um, and to innovate. And a lot of them are and doing really well. Um, like, for example, there's a company in Columbia called Rappi. Uh, they're like a delivery service like Uber Eats or Postmates yeah. or something like that. Um, they partnered with a company called KiwiBot. So they're delivering uh, food and goods and water and things like that, whatever you order on their platform with a robot instead of a human to avoid spreading the virus. And they do like hundreds of deliveries every single day. Um, yeah. Just one example of a um, company that's innovating. Um, and then you see companies like, like Zoom, for example, that are not just growing, but that are exponentially growing because there's so many users on their platform now. Definitely, yeah or Disney Plus, um, anything that, you know, would be in high demand when you're stuck at home. Um, So I think there's a lot of good there. I think the negative stuff that I worry about the most is people not being able to go back to work um, anytime soon and then having to create more stimulus packages to have more more loan programs for small businesses that aren't able to um, adapt as quickly or that are losing money and then getting to the point where um, you start having some real currency issues with uh, not just printing money and debt um, and borrowing, but 
you know, also different commodities taking big hits like oil, for example, which has devastated certain currencies in Latin America, especially the Colombian peso. Um, so, I mean, a lot of those could be catalysts for sending an economy, not only into recession, but potentially a lot worse in the coming year. So, I mean, that's the, the negative side of it, but hopefully, you know, we kind of get through it and it is cyclical and um, maybe we can get back to some normal stuff, but definitely yeah. more optimistic in some ways than I am pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for our generation, like if you look at all the crises that could happen to you, it's one of the best ones you could have, right? You're stuck at home with internet, food is working, delivery is working. Mm -hmm. We spend most of our time in front of a laptop anyway, so like right. it could be way worse. Like imagine you were born in the 900 in the States. You were mm -hmm. 18, first world war, then Spanish flu, then by the time you were 40, second world war, and so on and so on. Uh, the, the, our businesses can also potentially thrive as long as the whole economy doesn't go bust. What, the one thing that really pisses me off a little bit is that conversation about going back to the new normal. Um, I think at this stage, it's safe to say that everyone in the world is aware of the risks of having a normal life. Yep. You know, if you're in the high risk of Corona, you know whether you're gonna have to be hospitalized or you may die because of your health state and so on and so on. Let people do their own choices. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, the streets are still not behind the wall in a city. Like if you wanna kill yourself, you know what to do. You're just gonna jump in front of the car you still give the people the freedom. Mm. And a little bit here, like I understand what's the risk of me getting infected, allow me to make a decision when I, whether I want to stay home or I want to go out because it's my life at the end. But that's more like an ideology conversation now, whether people can be self-governed, you know, whether you want to give people freedom or you want to manage them and so on and so on. So that conversation becomes more of a, how we want the sea to be run than the disease itself. Right. I like how everyone is starting to actually wash their hands now too. It's like, you should have been doing that in the first place. Now everyone <laughs> exactly, <yeah>. models <laughs> of hand sanitizer and masks and tons of soap and they wash their hands every five seconds. And I'm like, well, why weren't you doing that before? <laughs> why is it exactly, for you to be healthy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People realize that they have to wash their hands before going to the toilet, not after. <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. I actually saw something in the news where, um, they in some places they might be implementing a whole bunch of uv lights um like in like subways or bathrooms or places where you know there's you know, a lot of germs people spread a lot of germs um in um in gyms and things like that to you know help curve some of the the virus the, the coronavirus and other potential um you know pathogens i think that's a smart idea actually i see that a lot down here in columbia and a lot of the gyms they have tons of uv light to, you know, yeah. kill some of the bacteria and whatnot. Um, I don't know. That's another form of innovation, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully we get a lot, we get a better society out of this, smarter people, more educated on, on health in general. I'd be, yeah. that'd be nice. Yeah, correct. And again, it's a discussion where we need a scientist to join us, whether what's better to protect us from the viruses and bacteria or, or make us stronger. I guess the approach of making us stronger it requires some sacrifice. I mean, some people have to die for the other people to stay and the, the DNA gets modified and our kids and, and so on are actually stronger by being exposed. So we learn how to deal with bacteria. Mm -hmm. Whether the other approach is kind of protecting everyone, but the, the, the smaller amount of bacteria and viruses you, 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 are, you, you engage with 
throughout your life, the weaker your body really becomes because it doesn't know how to fight anymore. Yeah, it's like right. with muscles, you don't train your muscles become weaker. I think people um, get used to coronavirus. I mean, I, I look at it in a lot of ways that I do the the, the cold um, mm-hmm. because the cold virus, you know, it's almost impossible to come up with a, a cure or yeah. a vaccine for it because it's always mutating. It's a virus. Um, you exactly. get different strains all the time. Um, you know, and back in the old days, people used to legitimately die from the, the cold virus. Yeah. Um, nowadays, we have ways of coping with it. We're used to it. It comes and goes and waves and it's no big deal. Um, you know, the coronavirus is um, pretty malicious, <laughs> um, especially for older people and people with existing conditions. I mean, that's just a fact. But I mean, as I think over time, people will just kind of get used to it being there because thinking that we're going to have a vaccine for it is a little bit naive because it's already got many different variations of it depending on what country or continent you're on. Um, and it's continue to mutate every single year. It's not going to just disappear like that. Um, you're not going to have a vaccine just like that. I think it's kind of just a cash grab people just trying to make money off of the vaccine idea. So I think in time people will get used to it, but yeah, people need to start listening to scientists. Yes, please. <laughs> you know, I was I was in Nigeria during the Ebola crisis in 2014, mm-hmm. and Ebola was absolutely scary because, like, the death rate is like 90 percent, and it kills you in seven days. Right. Uh, so the amount of like fear that paralyzes you was even bigger than now. But what was so scary about Ebola actually also makes it so hard to uh, spread because it just kills too fast. You know? And uh, Ebola, if you don't have symptoms, then you cannot give anyone else Ebola. You only start, you know, spreading Ebola when you have symptoms on your own. Um, so it's really hard to protect yourself from that because it's just so not manageable. It kills too many people. But as long as the data is not incorrect, uh, we can somehow manage that 2% uh, death rate at, at, the, at this stage, mm-hmm. knowing what we know. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, I don't want to sound too libertarian because uh, I, I don't want to sound like all those guys on the right side because I don't identify myself with them. Um, but here I kind of get annoyed because of how much control it is put over you in terms of someone telling me what to do in order to protect myself. Um, right. And I'm going to put it out here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's the way it should be. Um, and, and that doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's um, whether someone, what someone chooses to do with their life, if they want to do a certain kind of drug, if they want to um, go to point A or to point B or spend this much time here or there, or do this or that. Like, I think as an individual, that should be your sovereign right and it shouldn't be up to any sovereign group or body or government. Um, no, it's like, who, who is anyone to tell you that you can or cannot uh, put cocaine in your body like how is that how is that a law like it's your body and like if you want to do it all right i mean yeah you shouldn't solicit cocaine you shouldn't give cocaine to people but if you do cocaine why is that illegal why is suicide illegal? why is um not that i'm encouraging it but like anything that you know it's should be your right it's a decision you make why is anyone exactly it's it's kind of weird and that whole discussion is like, okay, so who gets to decide what is wrong, what is good, what is bad? Why is alcohol allowed and marijuana not if all the numbers are saying that alcohol is so much better and kills so much more people and so on and so on? So um, 
as soon as you introduce those rules, then who gets to decide what is good and what is on the edge and what is what is not good anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you either let, leave and let live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who's making these decisions. Let's commercialize caffeine, but let's make cocaine and marijuana illegal. I don't know. It's <laughs> weird, weird world we live in. But anyways, um, Merrick, Thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. and Yeah, have, thanks for inviting um, me and allowing me to share my story. Yeah, of course. Um, very interesting story. Looking forward to digging into your book. I'll make sure that everyone sees your book as well. Um, I think a lot of people in my audience will definitely find it fun, fascinating. Um, lovely conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, again, thanks for coming on and taking the day and your busy Saturday of quarantine. <laughs> Same here. Stay safe and hopefully talk soon. All the best. Yeah, Bye-bye. Absolutely. Bye.